This episode of the Organic BC podcast was funded by the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food. This is the Organic BC podcast, and I'm Jordan Mon. This episode, a primer on production practices that can reduce on-farm greenhouse gas emissions via carbon sequestration. For this episode, you'll hear from two people. Hello, my name is Amy Norgard, and I am a climate change extension specialist with the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food. My primary areas of focus in this role are supporting farmers to adapt to climate change, as well as supporting farmers to reduce emissions, so reducing greenhouse gas emissions, as well as increasing carbon storage in agricultural lands here in BC. Well, hello, my name is Dieter Giesing. I'm the Provincial Soil Specialist for the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food, but I'm also an assault instructor with the University of the Fraser Valley. First up, Amy outlines the problem of farm-based greenhouse gas emissions, defines carbon sequestration, and suggests some practices that can lead to a net reduction in on-farm emissions. After that, Dieter raises his hand to say, not so fast. In our effort to reduce emissions, he says, we have to take into account our specific growing conditions in order to avoid increasing, rather than decreasing, our farm's contribution to climate change. Okay, that's about it for now. You're about to hear my conversation with Amy, and I will talk to you in a little bit. Amy Norgard, thanks for joining me on the Organic BC podcast. Hey, Jordan. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I am really looking forward to learning a whole lot more than I know about carbon sequestration on farms today. And I think how I want to frame the conversation, Amy, is this way. According to the federal government, 10% of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions are from crop and livestock production. And that's excluding emissions from the use of fossil fuels or from fertilizer production. So I guess we're going to get into a conversation about the role that carbon sequestration can play in terms of our goals, overall emissions reduction goals in Canada and the expectations and hopes that our governments have in terms of what agriculture can do towards those goals. So having said all that, where can we start? Maybe you could contextualize this overall, you know, goal of reducing emissions in Canada and agriculture's role in that. Yeah, great. I think that's a good spot um, Good spot to start. You know, these stats depend on the way that we count and the way that we draw lines as to what's counted or attributed to a specific sector or activity and what's counted elsewhere. And so here in BC, to kind of, you know, give more um, BC-specific stats, kind of the most uh, up-to-date data that I'm familiar with is still from 2018. It's kind of the last time that I've looked closely at this data. And so in BC, we say, you know, agriculture, Agriculture emissions account for anywhere between 3 to 7%, which, you know, that's a pretty huge range, um, still a small piece of the pie. And again, it depends on how you count it. So I like to kind of think of it as like that pie having three different areas. So there's agriculture, so that's what you described as, you know, the primary on-farm from crop and livestock production. And that's where that lower value comes from. So that's about 3.6% of our emissions, or you can round that up to four. And then I do like to count the on-farm um, fuel use. And so that's like, you know, we're heating greenhouses with natural gas, we put fuel in our tractors. And um, so that's on-farm fuel use. And that makes up another about 1%, just over 1% of a, of BC's emissions is on-farm fuel use. 
And then we also have kind of this very generic other category that's um, actually what we're going to probably focus on today is um, kind of that carbon sequestration or carbon storage category. But how we manage land can kind of change the amount of carbon that's stored in that land. And so those are also treated a bit differently. And the way that that's counted, that's a pretty small uh, fraction, but we're going to dive into that a bit more as to even though it's small, why it can uh, have a big difference. So right now that's around uh, like half a percent, actually around 0.5. Okay, so I have at least one follow-up question though. Going back to the okay. four to five percent figure, yeah. like of direct emissions from crop and livestock production, I think yep. that's the number roughly that you said, or three or four, yep. whatever. If that's excluding most forms of energy use, like you had a separate number for that, what what yeah. is that? What are those emissions coming from? Or some, I mean, one I can think of are actual emissions from applied fertilizer. Yeah, exactly. So great question. And this is where, um, you know, we have three greenhouse gas emissions green types of greenhouse gases that are counted so we have carbon dioxide and that's what we usually associate with you know that's what we're trying to capture and put in the soil or in woody um, woody perennials but yeah so from agriculture this is more of our nitrous oxide and methane and so that is coming from in bc a large portion of that so kind of two-thirds of that kind of direct source agriculture category is enteric fermentation and so that's methane emissions coming from cattle so that's dairy and and beef as well um, and then we have manure management. So you can have methane emissions uh, and nitrous oxide emissions coming from manure piles, compost as well. And then agricultural soils, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes as I'm saying that because agricultural soils is quite generic. But as you say, like that's our um, uh, applying nitrogen to the soil. And there's definitely a, a misconception that it's like fertilizer nitrogen. It's actually just all nitrogen that you add to the soil. It's a really, quote unquote, leaky cycle. And so that's um, nitrogen coming from compost, nitrogen coming from manure, nitrogen coming from fertilizers, a lot of that can end up basically like gassing off as um, nitrous oxide. And then a final tiny category, barely worth mentioning, is this um, carbon-containing fertilizers, quote-unquote. And you can imagine like the lime that we put on the field. So that's going to emit a bit of CO2 into the atmosphere. Right. Okay. Thanks for that. So you mentioned in those original numbers, I think mm-hmm. in the 1% range, when we're talking about the movement of carbon either out of the soil or into the soil, depending on our practices, right? And so that's yeah. that's what we're going to focus on now because, so based on our practices, we could be in a situation, and I think in, largely are in a situation we, when we are, when our soil is contributing carbon to the atmosphere, but we, through our practices, you know, we, we can achieve the opposite and actually treat our soils to an extent as a sink for carbon already in the atmosphere. And that's what we can think of as carbon sequestration, correct? Yeah, exactly. So it's, and it's not only putting carbon in the soil, we can also put carbon into woody perennials. So that includes um, like actual crop woody perennials. So that's your uh, your tree fruit and things like that, but it's also your riparian areas, uh, hedgerows, and those kind of buffer areas as well. Anywhere you have um, some woody perennials growing, then the carbon that's actually in the biomass of those plants and then also going into the soils, that's also carbon sequestration. Yeah, you can have carbon sequestration regardless of whether um, the net contribution regardless of whether agriculture in general is still being a source of emissions, we're just, we would just in that case be reducing those emissions by using good carbon sequestration strategies. Yes, exactly. It's kind of like having the scale and you have like emissions going out on one side and carbon sequestration going down on the other side. And as you say, you can have carbon sequestration, but you can still have positive net emissions. Like you can still be a net emitter. So yeah, I think the next step then is to explore the context in which our agricultural systems are a source of CO2 emissions. 
in terms of this this uh, sink and source situation. Can you can you take us through that? Yep. So the the primary times when our soils are acting as a source, you know, as producers, we can think about what are those practices that are reducing our soil organic matter, because that's also kind of maybe more the language that producers speak in is, you know, producers are very concerned about increasing their soil organic matter because of all the benefits that that has. And when we talk about soil organic matter, you know, the, at the most simple um terms like soil organic matter, fairly synonymous with soil organic carbon. They're not the exact same thing. Soil carbon is only part of soil organic matter. But anyways, just put that out there for, you know, all those practices that reduce soil organic matter are reducing soil carbon. Like the classics that always come up are tillage practices. So um, increased tillage generally and generally translates to increased soil carbon loss. And kind of the mechanism there is, you know, you're tilling the soil, you're basically kind of really stirring up aerobic activity and all of those soil microbes go to work and they start eating that soil carbon and they're actually respiring off that carbon. And so, but again, I really like that word generally is quite important here because in the BC context, reducing tillage to increase soil carbon isn't always the result that we find in research. This practice is very well established in the prairies. Um, and some of that comes down to different crop types. And a lot of it actually comes down to basically different ecosystems, which are kind of different temperature and moisture regimes. But I'd still like to, you know, keep that on the table is like, let's not throw that away just because there's nuance to it. Um, so to move on from that, there's also fallow practices. So having soil fallow kind of it being uncovered for any period of time, um, that's definitely not increasing soil carbon. And that's seen as something that's decreasing soil carbon. And those other general categories are kind of just a difference between, well, actually, I'll start first with one is basically, you know, an obvious one is deforestation. So anytime that forest land is converted to cropland, that's attributed to agriculture as like the, the loss of carbon in that land. And same thing, transitioning grasslands into cropland, especially annual cropland, that's uh, credited as kind of a, a soil carbon loss. And then... Um, the the other categories that are definitely like slightly less actionable are basically just the difference between annual cropland and perennial cropland. So if you can just kind of imagine those two landscapes, the perennial cropland has a lot more carbon stored in it, both because um, the soil is generally being covered. There's a lot less tillage that's happening there. And you actually have carbon being stored in that woody biomass. And you can kind of compare that to when you look at an annual field. But, you know, it's kind of a less actionable, quote unquote, difference in soil carbon in those landscapes because, you know, perennializing our landscapes isn't necessarily going to give us a well-rounded diet. Again, a lot of nuance there that uh, it could be a full conversation in itself, but those kind of the general times that we see our landscapes losing carbon. Right. So, but like having listened to you say that, it seems like the major, major factor here is the loss of carbon through uh, bare soil and and turning of the soil. And I, I'm happy to join you in saying there's a lot more nuance to it than that. But essentially, mm-hmm. um, when we talk about carbon sequestration, we're we're trying to 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 counteract um, this this loss of carbon. That's like the, that's the major that's the major loss that we're talking about in this in in the context of this conversation. Yeah, and I definitely um I mean I think it's good to also just pivot and this is definitely um a lot easier to discuss in the like what are the things we should be doing versus the things we shouldn't. Um so obviously we can look at that as um if we flip this then there's only a longer list of things we should be doing and you know the easy ones just to kind of mirror what I just discussed is like, you know, that's reducing tillage and that doesn't have to be zero till. Um it can just be reducing tillage. Again, there's so much nuance there. 
and the media really portrays, you know, reducing tillage as a bit of a silver bullet answer. And it's, it's really not that easy. But anyway, so, you know, reducing tillage and then reducing bare land. And so that's where cover cropping comes in. So that's a great option. Other options in crop production, um, you know, using perennial forages, using compost and manure. So anytime we're just putting more carbon into the land um, and again, perennial crops, but that's um, I'm not necessarily advocating for let's grow less carrots and everybody should have blueberries. So Amy, having, having heard you summarize all that, it, it seems like one way we can think about loss of carbon from our systems is just like various farming practices that essentially degrade soil, right? So you mentioned that there are forms of tillage that can do that and we, we, we lose uh, soil organic carbon. I, I, something you didn't mention, but that I can think of is just like, I would assume in, in livestock agriculture, you know, there are, there are ways of grazing animals that, that, that ultimately um, degrade soil over time if we graze them too heavily, for example. So that, that probably is a good segue then to just jump into like examples of, bet, of, of, of good carbon sequestration strategies in the context of BC. And um, I think we'll start, I want to talk about crop production and live, livestock production. Could we start with crop production? Could you give us some strategies? Yeah. So with crop production, um, I mean, kind of went over this briefly, but just all of kind of those practices that, as you said, they're kind of like the beneficial practices that a lot of producers are wanting to use anyways because of the co-benefits of, you know, those benefits we get from having that carbon in the ground. So that is things like, you know, keeping the ground covered and that's partly to reduce soil erosion because when we're, when we end up with soil erosion, like that topsoil, you're carrying away the carbon that's attached to those soil particles. And then also by keeping the soil covered, if it's being covered with a living plant, say a cover crop, then that cover crop is also, you know, assuming that that cover crop isn't being carried away um, and, you know, will be kind of returned into that soil. That's the source of carbon. Again, the perennial crops and kind of managing them in a way as well. We can manage um, the kind of like the laneways or the pathways in between our perennial crops with cover cropping. And then, as you mentioned, in livestock production, so rotational grazing and kind of specifically within rotational grazing, I mean, same with all of these is basically when you're doing a practice that's increasing the amount of carbon that's going into the soil, then homeostasis or the natural balance of carbon in the soil will go up because basically we have soil microbes in the soil that are constantly trying or constantly eating the carbon that's there. That's their food source. And in the absence of constantly adding carbon into the soil, basically your carbon goes down. So it's just all of these practices um, are either kind of, you know, preventing carbon loss directly through erosion or actually just needing to basically be constantly putting more carbon into the soil to ensure that that, that kind of carbon storage in the soil is, uh, is topped up. And then there's also, as I mentioned previously, the woody print, perennials. Um, and so that's both crop and livestock production. Those are kind of having those buffers around, um, you know, in riparian areas or some hedgerows just around um, like property buffers or, or areas like that. So I, I'm probably, uh, I'm probably going to oversimplify this to a degree that, that, that you as, uh, you know, as a climate nerd is, are not going to like. <laughs> But okay. it really seems like in a way we can really simplify this by saying like, you know, plants in general, various types of plants are very capable, if managed in a certain way, of adding carbon to the soil when we grow them. Whether, whether we're talking about annuals or whether we're talking about woody perennials. So if we can cover more of our soil with plants and manage them in a way that they're doing that, then then we have a shot at 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 adding carbon to the soil. So in, in annual cropping systems, this looks like 
you know, less bare land, replacing, you know, bare fallow land with cover cropped land, and then get making sure that, that you're raising those cover crops in a way where they're, where they're, you're maximizing the carbon they're adding to the soil. Or as you said, in livestock production, grazing fields in a way where, um, we're not taking too much of the of the plant away, uh, so such that we we get this net contribution of of carbon to the soil. It's really just about finding ways to grow plants that can add that carbon to the soil. How do you feel? About yeah, that? exactly. No, that's exactly what it is. It's um, I mean, we all learned about photosynthesis somewhere between I don't know what was it, grade six, grade seven, and so it is just that process that you described. Photosynthesis is taking um, CO two of the atmosphere, it's putting in, it into like the actual body of that plant, so then that plant has that carbon in it, and then yeah, it's just about getting the carbon from that plant to uh, either go into the soil or stay into the, in the soil. So yeah, it's a bit of a simplification, but it's um, it's a good um, good description. Where this gets super kind of complicated, though, Amy, is it seems that like how do you factor in though that in 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 trying to manage our our land a little differently to be growing more cover crops or or you know certain approaches to rotational grazing, whatever, we may ultimately have to accept yield drops that then might require us to have more land in production. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I fully agree that there is no easy answer. And um, I think that sometimes the media can portray these practices that are meant to increase carbon storage in the soil, like they can be kind of portrayed as this, yeah, silver bullet, I guess, is kind of the easiest way to say it. And but definitely the goal at the end of the day, and why I kind of still have hope that we can kind of produce food in a sustainable way and put more carbon in the soil without needing, as you say, it's kind of like that, um, like land sparing versus land sharing. Um, so do we grow more intensively, but maybe that intensification comes at a cost itself um, versus using up more land. And I think that, I mean, this is where I guess is kind of nice, a nice segue into the discussion of like our focus on carbon sequestration or putting more carbon in the soil or into woody perennials, these kind of the co-benefits of it. So, I mean, you know, being a producer yourself, you know that putting a cover crop down doesn't necessarily actually every single season translate into all of these good things. And if anything, it produced or it really shows so many challenges in how do we kind of elegantly incorporate cover crops into our systems without, yeah, almost creating mayhem sometimes, you know, like the pest bridges that can happen, et cetera. Um, but there are the co-benefits that happen, um, you know, when we create windbreaks. Um, with hedgerows and we're keeping the soil in place so that that topsoil is productive the next year and we're not losing a bunch of our nutrients to local waterways and things like that. So I don't definitely don't have like a cut and dry answer for that of like, no, it's, these are definitely good things. We won't need, you know, we won't need to um, take yield cuts. But I think that um, that's kind of where I'm excited about the research and kind of the farmer to farmer knowledge sharing can happen is how do we maximize kind of the benefits and minimize the the negative outcomes of these practices. Yeah. And I guess what I was getting at or what the conclusion I'm coming to in talking to you is that in one sense, maybe the way for many farms to approach this or for us to approach this in general, since, since the whole source and sink thing gets kind of complicated when you talk about the phrase like land sparing versus land sharing, is for is for the average farmer to just look at like how can I make small changes on my farm? Yes. 
you know, to so I still maintain the yields that I feel I need or or I'm entitled to or whatever. But how can I make changes at the edges or margins to 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 sequester just a little bit more carbon on my individual farm and thus make a small contribution uh, or reduce yeah. or reduce my contribution, you know, to, to to emissions or whatever. Yeah, and um, I'm not only thinking about it as like that that's the be all and end all for like it has to be a small contribution but yeah like the testing new practices on a small scale as you just described so testing them either yeah on the edge maybe where um, production is less important or that crop is less important or in a small area of a main field Um, and yeah really testing them out so that hopefully we can have kind of those better outcomes Um, and it does you know it takes um some commitment to doing kind of those on-farm trials and um but i do know farmers who are doing that either with support or kind of on their own and i do see like that's where a lot of i think the excitement for this comes from is um seeing the successes i guess that come out of those um kind of testing it small and then trying to scale up or or share that information with um other local producers now one thing we haven't talked about amy is that there's like there are other you know farmers have other motivations to take on some of these practices in terms of like co-benefits in their systems i think you call them additional ecosystem services can you can you explain that so like if if farmers take on some of these attempts and strategies for 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 sequestering carbon what are some of the benefits they may enjoy just by doing that 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 are like related i mean there's definitely lots of different ways to look at it some of it is um even just in terms of like consumer perception so taking on some of these practices i know um like several ranches that have really committed to rotational grazing. And that's a huge part of their, their promotion and how they brand themselves as, um, as a farm. And, and you can see, um, you can see consumers kind of like catch on to that. So there's, that's not even necessarily an ecosystem service that co-benefit that comes with kind of like transition to these practices that consumers are becoming more aware of. And then other pieces, I mean, the, kind of general piece in this is um, general increases in soil health. So how your soil functions and, so in, I guess, the shortest amount of words possible is when we put more carbon in the soil, for the most part, you know, that's increasing soil organic matter. Soil organic matter does many benefits for the soil, in, um, including, you know, it increases aggregation. Um, that's kind of, you know, putting, mashing together the soil particles in a way that it allows really good airflow through your soil, really good water flow. That's how we're avoiding kind of like ponding and things like that in the spring. And you can imagine the benefits, you know, for a crop producer to have um, just kind of that more robust soil health in terms of like soil functioning. So there's things like that that are direct benefits to the producer. And then in terms of ecosystem services, which are those are more things where it's not actually a benefit to the producer, but a benefit to kind of providing maybe like societal or like public good. And that's things like protecting water quality, not only from keeping the soil covered and preventing um, soil erosion, so like physical um, kind of deposits of soil into local waterways, but also, you know, cover crops, they take up nitrogen at the end of the season. If you put down something like um, a type of grass cover crop or a rye or things like that, and they'll take up nitrogen. And so then that means, you know, less nitrogen going into our local waterways. So those are kind of those examples of ecosystem services. So, and I'd say that that's where there has been so much um, I guess emphasis on carbon storage being um, uh, kind of like the practice that agriculture is focused in on is that we kind of get these multiple outcomes versus you can imagine um, if we do things like fuel switching in our tractors to reduce, you know, on-farm fuel use, there's not necessarily this huge list of co-benefits that go with that. All right. Yeah. Good point. So overall, Amy, what role can carbon sequestration play in helping Canada meet its emissions reduction targets? 
I, I guess I'm curious if there are like what limits yeah. there are to that role. No, that's a great question. Honestly, in BC, it like soil carbon sequestration is such a promising practice in the short term, I guess is kind of the the caveat that I'll add to that. And I'll explain why. So in the short term, basically we have from like very rough calculations, we have a lot of land that has capacity to um, either increase some of these practices that we talked about or and that's kind of like land management or, you know, it's not the cover cropping tillage or rotational grazing is um, just planting perennial um, woody perennials. And so those, you know, they take up, take about 20 years, I think, kind of as they kind of turn into like a pretty major carbon sink. So it's not necessarily super short term that they come into effect. But basically, again, rough calculations, we could offset quite a bit of our kind of like net or sorry, our current agricultural footprint from these other sources could be offset by a lot of these carbon storage practices. But then why I say that's in the short term is basically we had a saturation point. And so all of like all of the, the soils and also, you know, when you plant a woody perennial like that, woody perennial is only going to get so big and then it doesn't keep sequestering carbon. Like it's not going to keep taking more carbon to the atmosphere. It just sits there and it's sequestered, say like 10 units of carbon. And then it's not going to take any more than that. And so then, um, and same thing with our soils, say you have an acre of land and quote unquote, it could um, uptake to a saturation point of like quote unquote, 10 units of carbon. And then once you're there, you have to keep doing the practices to maintain that level, but you won't be able to add more in because of this um, basically saturation point. And so then at that point, you can imagine going back to that concept that we discussed previously about like the net emissions. Then if we're still if we're still having sources of emissions from other places like using fuel in or sorry, yeah, using fuels in greenhouses, using fuels in tractors, um, enteric fermentations, that's um, methane emissions from livestock, like those will still be there and we won't have these offsets to kind of reduce that. Does that description kind of make sense? Totally. And, and I mean, it, it totally makes sense. And I, I, I think it, what I'm hearing is that, you know, we have a long way to go until we would be at a saturation yeah. point. So why not try and get to that yeah. saturation point? Um, I am wondering, though, like related to that question, what kind of I don't know. I, I, I can't imagine if you'll have the, a specific answer, but in terms of like percent of like emissions and stuff like that, like how much if we if we did miraculously get to a saturation point i mean you know how much how much carbon does that represent or how much how much of an impact on emissions does it represent do you have any sort of answer for that yeah that's a great question so um of course all of our math and estimates on this are very rough um, definitely large margins of error um and so we can kind of look at you know how close to this like bc target that we have which is um, a 40 percent reduction in emissions um, by 2030 below our 2007 emissions. Um, and that's kind of broadly what all the sectors in BC are trying to move towards. And if we look at, you know, what would the adoption levels of these practices that we just discussed need to be in order to get there? And so we can talk about, you know, is it 50% adoption? Is it 75% adoption? Is it only 25% of producers implementing these practices? And, um, you know, while these carbon storage practices do have substantial potential especially when compared to some of the other um uh the other options to reduce kind of um uh you know uh like sorry direct emissions from crop and livestock we talked about those like manure management and soils and things so just our carbon storage one they do have a a, a good amount of potential but we really would need kind of close to 100 percent adoption quote unquote of these practices again very general estimates um 
for example, you know, when we make these estimates, we're estimating how um, how wide a hedgerow would be or how wide a riparian buffer would be. Is it three meters wide? Is it 10 meters wide? Is it 20 meters wide? Um, there's a lot of different uh, amounts of carbon that would be stored in um, in those woody perennials, depending on um, how big that buffer is planted. But in some kind of general and generally conservative estimates, um, yeah, we'd need, we would need um, a pretty high level of adoption of these practices. So lots of farm edges, um, lots of waterways having um, woody perennials planted, like all of the annual and perennial croplands having cover crops being planted, um, rotation, intensive rotational grazing being implemented kind of everywhere possible. Yeah, to get there, uh, it kind of it shows good potential, but the uptake um, that we need of these practices is pretty is pretty high. Amy, one thing I haven't asked you yet that seems kind of important is how we how we track and measure carbon sequestration. Like how you know how does that get done? Honestly, like I guess the short answer is there are lots of ways to measure soil carbon. Um, and that's definitely one of the challenges right now is you see a bunch of studies, like every researcher kind of has their preferred method of, of how they want to, or how they measure soil carbon in their lab. There's different depths you can measure it at, different types of analyses. And there have been initiatives in the past in BC to try to figure out like, how do we collect soil data in a more standardized way so we can not only share that data and also kind of like create these more robust data sets that we know where we're starting from, we can track improvements. And that is really important in terms of um, reporting and also for our own ministry to understand kind of like the tracking outcomes and evaluation of um, programs or initiatives that we implement. Like, did they actually move the dial? Like, what was the impact of that? Other barriers like data sharing agreements and privacy and who owns the data, privacy issues with farmers, privacy issues with researchers, et cetera. Like, I feel like the list goes on, but and I'm kind of fully avoiding answering the question of like, how do we actually measure these things? Because that's kind of a, an exhaustive conversation that um, is also not necessarily fully in my wheelhouse anymore now that I'm a few years away from actually having been in research. Okay. And so, Amy, I wanted to ask you about I wanted to talk about like the role that our governments are going to play and maybe I'll ask you to focus on the provincial government because you you work in, in in a provincial ministry like what what role do you think our provincial governments looking ahead need to play or or if you want to choose to answer that what 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 role do they currently intend to play in 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 supporting this on farm yeah that's a great question I can speak to it quite generally and I mean right off the bat definitely preface this with our ministry's focus in the past and definitely still a priority is um, actually supporting farmers to adapt to climate change just given that we really are um, our sectors at the front lines of these impacts that we're we're seeing and we've seen that over the last couple of years but you know that's the other, that's kind of the other side of it and so in terms of you know supporting our sector to um, transition to what we would call kind of like a low carbon economy I would say that our role is at least kind of supporting the knowledge sharing of practices that do that are able to reduce net greenhouse gas emissions. And that also comes back to like knowledge development. So the research that has to happen to kind of like prove that these practices work, helping support like reducing regulatory barriers, things like that. Um, so it, it largely centers around that knowledge sharing, knowledge development, um, kind of pieces like that, trying to break down like areas of misinformation. And then we also do see funding coming both from the provincial government and federal government for what we would call like uh, kind of broadly either, you know, we can call it them incentives or cost sharing or implementation funding. And so that's actually um, trying to support farmers with the, the costs of adopting some of these practices, especially um, 
when these practices don't come out as being a net gain for the producer. So there's not necessarily a lot of reason for a producer to uptake some of these practices, not necessarily the ones we talked about today, but, you know, the other ones that are um, don't have a lot of co-benefits or the co-benefits are more public focused or um, societal focused. And so, yeah, we can kind of um, support with cost sharing. And those are definitely cost sharing. So we're not footing the entire bill, but um, yeah, kind of support for implementation. So maybe a good place to end this conversation. Tell us a little bit about your your role that you just took on with the Ministry of Food and Agriculture for BC, because it's it'll it'll kind of get at 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 you know how how farmers are going to be able to receive a little bit of help in this regard. Yeah, I'm new to this position. I just started in this role two months ago, and also this position is actually new in our ministry. So um, I'm the first climate change extension specialist um, here, and. Yeah, it's an exciting time to be in this work. Also a bit daunting just seeing all the different pieces that I'm really excited to put together, but I only have so many hours in my day. So my current work will be launching soon, like a survey for producers to actually do like a deep dive, give us feedback on the um, handful of programs that we have had running. So it's like our climate change adaptation program, which is, um, as the title says, is focused on adaptation. Um, our beneficial management practices program, which is cost share funding, our environmental farm plan program. And so we're really excited to have um, a survey and there'll be an incentive for producers to fill that out. And we're doing some other types of engagements coming up as well. So we're kind of doing this looking back, looking forward right now. And we're really excited to set up a climate change extension program um, with my colleagues and um, and yeah, basically kind of combine largely these kind of areas of research extension and then also areas where we just do direct cost sharing and incentives. And um, yeah, I think it's uh, because, my, because my background's in research and on-farm field trials, I um, am really looking forward to kind of those aspects of like knowledge, de- good knowledge development, um, tangible knowledge sharing, and kind of this up, um, area of like actually getting uptake of practices. That sounds really exciting. Amy, and I look forward to seeing what comes from this new position that you filled. And I just want to thank you very much for sharing all this information with the listenership today. Awesome. Thanks for the conversation, Jordan. Okay. So thank you very much to our recently appointed climate change extension specialist with the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food, Amy Norgard, for that great summary of carbon sequestration and the farming practices that can lead to a net reduction in agricultural contributions to greenhouse gas emissions. Now, one thing you heard from Amy repeatedly as she attempted to summarize this concept was that this conversation is somewhat resistant to simplification. You know, these stats depend on the way that we count and the way that we draw lines. Let's not throw that away just because there's nuance to it. Yeah, it's a bit of a simplification, but it's, um, it's a good, um, good description. It's kind of the, the caveat that I'll add to that. Fully agree that there is no easy answer. This need for nuance in the conversation about carbon sequestration is why Amy suggested I talk to Dieter Giesing. Well, hello. My name is Dieter Giesing. I'm the provincial soil specialist for the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food, but I'm also an assault instructor with the University of the Fraser Valley. Dieter lives and breathes soil science, and he joined me on the phone to explain that if we're not careful, the practices we choose out of a desire to reduce our farm's greenhouse gas emissions can backfire and actually increase, rather than decrease, our farm's climate change footprint. Dieter's main concern is that while the approaches to carbon sequestration I discussed with Amy are generally effective, there are a couple of caveats to keep in mind. The first is that as we try to coax more carbon into our soils and the plants growing in them, we need to remember that the carbon cycle can't be considered on its own. 
The carbon and the nitrogen cycle are not independent. They work hand in hand. As an example, um, the a molecule called chlorophyll um, has um, lots of nitrogen inside. So um, when the plants assimilate um, carbon dioxide, um, there is a need for nitrogen. So let's think about a strategy for increasing carbon sequestration that Amy mentioned by adding manure or compost to our soil with the goal of incorporating the carbon in that material into our soil. But as Dieter points out, there's a potential problem. So um, most of the nitrogen in soil is in an organic form, so it needs to be decomposed to be, be made available to um, the plant. And um, that only happens by microorganisms. The, those microorganisms, they themselves have um, the carbon and nitrogen in their body in a certain ratio. And um, this ratio is called the carbon to nitrogen ratio, and which is for um, those microorganisms about eight. So we need to be careful that our compost doesn't have too much carbon in relation to nitrogen. Now, if we provide too much carbon um, in relation to or proportional to the nitrogen, then um, those microorganisms start to steal the nitrogen in their environment, which immobilizes the nitrogen um, and is, makes it not anymore available to the plant. This is called, um, the process is called nitrogen immobilization. But we also need to avoid applying compost that has too much nitrogen in relation to carbon. If we apply a um, material that has too much nitrogen inside, well, they can't keep up with integrating them into the body and we lose that nitrogen in the environment. So while both elements are necessary to build up in an effective way, um, the, the carbon in the soil, um, we also make sure that they come into the right ratio. Another caveat Dieter stressed is that some of our approaches to sequestration are less effective in poorly aerated soil. Now, there are situations uh, where the soil is depleted by oxygen, and that can happen in soils that are water-saturated or waterlogged or in compacted soils. Now, oxygen is necessary to burn organic material, and, and many organisms use it uh, to effectively decompose um, organic material. If that oxygen is not available, uh, there are actually organisms that can switch to other pathways or they even specialize on other pathways. And a result of um, this uh, new chemical pathway is that there is a byproduct. And those byproducts are uh, components like uh, methane or uh, nitrous gas. And um, those two gases are very powerful greenhouse gas, even much more powerful than carbon dioxide. Okay, so let's talk about adding compost again, only this time, assume it's being added to a poorly aerated soil. In this situation, unlike the earlier example, a compost with a non-ideal carbon to nitrogen ratio, i.e. too much carbon or too much nitrogen, would actually have you avoiding these unwanted emissions, whereas a compost with an ideal CN ratio could lead to unwanted emissions. A soil that doesn't have a lot of nitrogen here we won't actually notice um, a high production of methane or of uh, nitrous gas and vice versa. I mean, if there's a lot of ni only nitrogen on the soil that doesn't have any carbon source, won't produce any methane or any uh, nitrous gas. When we apply uh, manure on soil that is um, water saturated, we provide those easily available carbon and nitrogen uh, sources. And that, of course, triggers then uh, easily um, the emission of nitrous gas. No-till is another example. Um, if we practice no-till on poorly drained soils, 
or um, during high precipitation, there is a high potential of producing nitrous gas, especially in, in times where um, the farmer even adds some nitrogen sources um, to the ground. Dieter's last point there about no-till practices in poorly aerated soils is worth dwelling on. No-till crop production is frequently held up as an excellent practice for sequestering carbon. But as Dieter points out, it can be a different story in poorly drained soils. Now, in the case of no-till, the carbon gains are more likely to incur a nitrous gas emission penalty that can outweigh the gains. So the extent to which that occurs depends on the situation and environment. But I think it's safe to say that no-till is much less of a risk of nitrogen gas losses on well-drained soils. Dieter also pointed out that part of the challenge of sequestering carbon is that we're trying to do it much more rapidly than typically occurs in natural ecosystems. We have to understand that uh, many of those high carbon content um, salts of the world, whether it's the grasslands or certain organic salts, have been built up over um, thousands of years, many since the last ice age here in BC. And if we try now to um, shortcut that and say, well, it will happen within, well, I want to get up to one or two more percent within 10 years, we don't add actually um, stable carbon. We add, we add predominantly um, level carbon sources. And um, together with the nitrogen, we um, cause then uh, losses um, greenhouse gas losses that um, uh, are detrimental to the environment or to, to the atmosphere. I know this is a bit weird, but Dieter's point about trying to ram carbon into the soil too quickly brought to my mind the practice of force-feeding geese to produce foie gras, only instead of producing a rich liver pate, the soil belches back greenhouse gases. Uh, oftentimes it's a shock for them if they have been cultivated for years and now we do start introducing a lot of carbon thinking, well, the more the better. Um, well, it, it may show in an increase in our um, soil test results that we have higher carbon numbers. But what we don't do is then measure actually losses, say, of nitrogen. We don't know where they're lost into. Are they leached or are they going to the environment? But if um, we see a part of our soil that is more reluctant to um, um, to uh, build up uh, the carbon without uh, any um, overly um, uh, high amounts of um, uh, organic matter, we maybe say, okay, let's be less ambitious and really have a long-term goal rather than really trying to be um, coming out and say, well, in 10 years, I increased my soil by one or 2%. Um, if we walk away and that soil, and I think um, um, Amy talked about that already, that might actually just go back to a, a level, a more natural level. But on the way, those losses can be actually losses into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide or um, even if it's worse as nitrous gas. So uh, we have to understand um, what is actually basically uh, get a feeling how our soil uh, would ramp up if you want um, the carbon dioxide content if humans were not around anymore, right? Despite all the good intentions, we need to be very cautious uh, that um, we do actually something that in the big picture is not counterproductive. It might still, we might still observe an increase in carbon in the soil, 
But on the way to achieve that, we actually may have caused more harm than good. And and we, I mean, there we we oftentimes we don't know, but there are things like, uh, which are also part of generally um, good farming practices, is really to be all very cautious working with soils that are known to not drain very well. After taking in everything Dieter had to say, I told him that as a farmer with a genuine desire to reduce the impact of my farm on the environment, the whole idea of selecting the right practices can feel daunting. And, and, and you're right on. It's a daunting task. There's the landscape of BC is so diverse that I think if, if I can give a few recommendations is, is that don't be too focused on practices just for the practice sake. You, so there must be some flexibility. If it doesn't work, uh, a practice on your farm, um, it's it's not a shame. It's not a failure or something like that. It's just not working in that environment. So we need to have those approaches um, where we open our eyes, we learn, and um, we well we try to see actually what happens on other farms. And I think actually be open to ideas, even if they don't come within our um, let's say our peer group, even outside those groups, even other farming, even if sometimes conventional farming, see actually who has the best result. I think we have to work together as a group, learn from each other, um, be open to um, ideas if it's coming from, from academia or from other extension services and try it. And we are missing um, a lot of data here in BC. We're just beginning to understand and um, but what we know is that we, uh, from mostly from other jurisdictions, that um, the approaches of um, just seeing the carbon world may are kind of um, tracked actually to see the whole um, soil ecosystem. Dieter, thank you so much for for joining me to share your knowledge with us as we as we all kind of try and wrap our heads around um, you know what what we're going to need to do to to help combat and mitigate the, 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 the pernicious effects of climate change. Yeah, and uh, well, I really appreciate that opportunity you uh, gave me, Jordan. And yeah, I'm always available for uh, for a discussion. And uh, even though I may not have a um, silver bullet, I, perhaps it's just another thought or um, oftentimes those collective discussions come up with the best, um, the best solutions. Right, that's all for now. But before I say goodbye, I want to give special thanks to Emma Holmes, the industry specialist for organics with the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food. Emma gave me some help in producing this episode. I also want to acknowledge the support of the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food for the production of this episode, and to tell you that all the music we use in this podcast is courtesy of jazz flutist Matt Eckel. Thanks, Matt. Okay, it's time to say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.